The word authority. That word authority uh, makes some of us bristle. The mere mention of that word maybe begins to stir up a bit of ire within you. Authority has never been very popular, especially here in a very individualistic society. But it seems as though authority is at an all-time low in popularity. Every position of authority has been stripped in recent years of any guise of trustworthiness. The authority of principals, teachers, politicians, fathers, mothers, police officers, men, pastors, churches. We increasingly don't trust them. And sometimes for good reason. I'm sure all of us, myself included, could share ways in which authorities, but even particularly spiritual authorities, have abused their authority. And in their place, as a result, for increasingly distrusting authority, we instead begin to increasingly trust ourselves as authorities. We become laws unto ourselves. As Queen Elsa has taught us to sing, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. Disney reinforces this idea. And so since we can't trust anyone self, anyone else, we trust ourselves. And if we do trust somebody else, we might trust one of those kind of more cultural tribal leaders if we trust anyone. So this morning, as we can think about authority, we're first, we're going to sort of passively realize that, yes, indeed, there are bad authorities in the world. There are bad authorities in the world. And there's especially bad spiritual authorities. We'll see that by implication from the passage. But second, this morning, we're going to spend most of our time considering that there are good spiritual authorities and they should be pursued for the glory of God and the good of the church. That's what we'll see this morning as we consider genuine people with a genuine message for a genuine result that changes everything. That's what we'll see. Genuine people with a genuine message for a genuine result that changes everything. We'll do that from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. That's on page 986 of the chair Bibles in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. Please take it. We want you to have God's Word. Uh, but you're going to want to keep that passage open. And what we're going to do is you're going to see here, remember Paul is writing to this little church, this new baby church. He's writing to this church that he helped start amidst all kinds of affliction. And what we're going to see is, is he's, we're going to see how Paul... Sylvanus and Timothy, how they came, how this missionary, how they came to the Thessalonians. What was it like? In this passage, he lays out four aspects that are meant to encourage them in the gospel as a church and to refute the skeptics. How did they come? What were they like when they came? So as to encourage them in the gospel and refute their skeptics. So the first and first way in which they came so as to strengthen their confidence We see in the text, the first way in which they came is they came in an environment of shame and suffering. They came in an environment of shame and suffering. So as Paul continues to encourage this freshly minted church who were mired in their own set of afflictions, he reminds them that when they came to them, that they, Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy, they had just left Philippi where they had all kinds of shame and suffering. And that, of course, is not even to mention the shame and the suffering they had right there when they came to them in Thessalonica. Take a look at verse 1. 
He says there, you yourselves know, as he continues in the letter, you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. That word vain means empty. So what he's saying there is, is when we came to you, it wasn't empty. It wasn't a failure. It had legitimate results that were real. That's what he's saying. And then what he'll do in the next few verses, Joey will come back next week. You'll see that he'll consider, continue this in the next few verses. But from verses 2 down to 8 and continuing on, what Paul will then go on to do is defend the genuineness of their ministry Again, to do those two things, to strengthen the church in the truth of the gospel and to silence the critics. It wasn't in vain. When we came to you, it was true. It wasn't empty. It had real results that were real. So as to strengthen the gospel uh, there in the church and to refute the skeptics. It goes on in verse 2. We had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. As you yourselves know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. See, what Paul is saying here is very simple. He's responding to all of the skeptics that are in the ears of the church in Thessalonica saying, Paul and his gospel, all that stuff you guys are believing, it's a bunch of malarkey. The church had been hearing that. Because remember, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, they peaced out. They got on. They went into Berea and eventually down to Athens and eventually to Corinth, which is where this letter is probably being written from. And the skeptics are saying to this little church that's been formed amidst all of that affliction, saying all that stuff that they taught you is just a bunch of junk. It's not true. They left you. It's not real. It's not true. They're just trying to kind of say a bunch of stuff to you to kind of get some glory for themselves. To which Paul, Savannah, and Timothy are responding, going, seriously? If we're preaching this gospel for a bunch of you know stuff to make us own our own lives a little better, a little easier, well, clearly it ain't working because we came in shame and suffering. So, friends, the shame and the suffering and the spread of the gospel was and still is today a way of verifying the legitimacy of the gospel message and real gospel people. There's something about, just like it was with Jesus, there's something about suffering in the proclamation of the gospel that verifies the truthfulness of it. These guys came, Paul came in shame and suffering. They did not come in comfort and ease. They didn't roll into Thessalonica on private jets and Brooks Brothers suits, uh, whining and dining at local five-star restaurants. They came with cuts, literal cuts and bruises on their bodies and scars in their hearts. For how they had just been treated in Philippi. You can go and read about that in Acts chapter 16 and 17. And again, this means to build the Thessalonians church, church's confidence in Paul, their message. But the second thing he draws out in how they came was in their divine authority and divine message. They came from shame and suffering and they came with a divine authority and divine message. Look at verse 2 again. He says, we had boldness in who? In our God to declare to you the gospel of or from God in the midst of much conflict, in the midst of conflict. He goes on in verse three, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel 
so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed. God is witness. So to sum that up, Paul says, we came entrusted with the gospel of God. We declared the gospel of God with boldness in God as approved by God as apostles of God in Christ to please God, not man. And God is witness and God tests hearts. Entrusted with the gospel of God, declared the gospel of God with boldness in God as approved by God, as apostles of God in Christ to please God. And God is witness and God tests hearts. Guys, they did not, Paul is saying, they did not come in glitz and gold and worldly or came. They didn't roll up in any Rolls Royces, private jets. They came in shame and suffering with divine authority and with a divine message that evidently is hated by natural man, but it is rooted in God. Therefore, since they came in shame and suffering and with divine authority and a divine message, their results are not in vain. Nothing is more powerful than God. What they did... What happened there was not a failure. It's real. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy are genuine people with a genuine message. And what they are experiencing there in the church is a genuine result. It is not what the persecutors are saying. It's real. Paul's not done. As you heard read, Paul says that they not only came in shame and suffering with divine authority and a divine message. Thirdly, they came with complete innocence towards their fellow man. They came with complete innocence towards their fellow man. So given their innocence before God as coming with divine authority, Paul marks out that they also are innocent before their fellow man, saying that they sought nothing. Paul is saying we sought nothing from our fellow man. We were innocent before them. Notice again, look at the text, verse 3. They didn't come with any air or impurity or any attempt to deceive. In other words, he's saying, we weren't lying to you. The message, he's saying, the message and our motives were pure. That word impurity is often associated with sexual immorality. So he's like, we weren't trying to get some sexually immoral stuff out of you. We were pure in our motives. We are pure in our tensions. We did not lie to you. Verse 4. We didn't come, he said, to please man, but to please God. See, Paul is saying, once again, our motives were pure as evidenced by the fact that we weren't out to gain a crowd for ourselves. He goes on in verse 6, he says, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Paul's saying, like, as apostles, we could have, we could have thrown our weight around, but we didn't. We didn't need to, because we didn't come seeking to please man, didn't some to come to try to get glory from man. We came again to please God and to give glory to God and to love you with God that you would know Him. He goes on to give more evidence of their innocence towards their fellow man by saying in verse 5, we never came with words of flattery. In other words, he didn't show up. These guys didn't show up in Thessalonica saying how awesome they were. 
how amazing they were, how much potential they have. That missionary team, when they descended upon the city of Thessalonica, they did not come like the modern day secular religion that comes in saying how amazing you are, just trying to affirm every one of your base desires. To flat, that's flattery. It's not how they came. They came in the truth. And the truth about man before God is not flattering, as evidenced by the fact that everywhere Paul seems to be going, he keeps getting suffering thrown at him. And finally, he says in verse 5, they didn't come with any pretext for greed. God is witness. So they weren't lying. Their message was true. It was given with pure motives. It was derived from God himself. He knows that. We weren't trying to flatter you, he says. We weren't trying to please you or get glory from you or money from you. We weren't trying to get stuff out of you. We were trying to get stuff into you. That's what he's saying. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy came from an environment of shame and suffering with divine authority and a divine message, and they were innocent before their fellow man, though they could have made demands as apostles, they didn't. But then there's one more thing Paul draws out to encourage the church and to shut up the skeptics that were in the ears of the church. Fourth thing he references is the manner in which they came. Take a look at verse 7, the manner in which they came. He says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. They came as gentle and affectionately desirous of that Thessalonian church. They didn't come as heavy-handed jerks. They didn't come as money-grubbing prosperity gospel preachers. They didn't come trying to fit in the world with words of flattery. They didn't come as glory-seeking celebrity pastors. They didn't come as charlatans attempting to deceive them so as to get sex or power from them. No, they came with divine authority, with a divine message that they delivered like a nursing mother taking care of her kids that she so affectionately loves and wants good for. That's how they came. That was the manner that they came. I have two boys, and I've watched my wife care for our infant children. And I can tell you by testimony, it is both beautiful and sacrificial. There was absolutely nothing, I assure you, as every mother would tell you, absolutely nothing selfish or comfort-seeking about nursing and caring for a child. Quite the contrary. A doting mother over her child is one of the most pure and beautiful things left in a world gone wrong. Last week we heard about the Lord, how in joy He sings over us. But how many of us had our mothers in joy sing over us? How many times did our mothers feed us, clothe us, pray for us, clean us, teach us? How many times did our mothers weep over us and laugh over us? 
How many times did our mothers pray over us? In the last 70 years in the West, there has been a growing displeasure for the Bible's teaching on women in pastoral ministry. The thinking goes that it sidelines women in ministry. And yet I wonder how many of us would owe our salvation to our mothers preaching the gospel to us. My suspicion would be that would be most of us in the room. It's true for me. A mother's love for her children is one of the purest of loves. One suspicious celebrity has said, quote, the only love that I really believe in is a mother's love for her children. And brothers and sisters, a gospel-loving mother is even more pure and more lovely. Abraham Lincoln said, quote, no man is poor who has a godly mother. So adults and children alike, if your mother was instrumental to your hearing the gospel, tell her thank you a thousand times over. And when you get done, tell her again. Every single human being you see, take a look around in this room and outside of the world, every single human being you see was birthed by a woman. And while not all of us have had great mothers, the reality is there's an abundance of godly mothers that bore us and cared for us and taught us Jesus. And friends, it is this benevolent image that Paul means to inform the manner with which he came to the Thessalonians. That's the image. Gentle. That's what he said. Gentle. Not abusive. Gentle like a nursing mother, affectionately desirous for her children. And beloved, this is what Christian authority is supposed to look like when it comes to the church. Paul says we came ready to share with you not only the gospel, but our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. Not seeking any glory or any money, not lying or cheating, no impure benefits, but instead divine authority, commending the gospel of God to the children of God, whose home is the kingdom of God by the son of God in a manner that is likened to a doting mother that cares for her infant children because she was affectionately desirous of them. Genuine people. With a genuine message, genuine results. Provocative, isn't it? We can only imagine what that infant church was experiencing when they received this letter. What was it like for them? It was hard. We see all throughout this letter that they're going through all kinds of afflictions. We know what happened to Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. They got persecuted. So we can imagine what it was like when they received these words that we're just now reading. Maybe the member of First Baptist Thessalonica, Eliezer, was on his way to a market one day and some old friends said, there goes Eliezer, a Christian. <laughs> what an idiot. Maybe a sister on her way to church was shoved over, spat upon, kicked. 
What a fool she is for believing this mess. I'm sure there were countless meals. Mothers and fathers and friends and neighbors, longtime friends and neighbors, when these new Christians in this church maybe sat down and were having a walk with them, where they were chastised because they believed that Jesus Christ was the answer to all of God's promises. Surely at those same meals, some of those members of that new little church had the ministry of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy called into question. That's clearly the context in this passage. You believe this guy? Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy? You're a fool to believe this stuff. They don't care about you. They just want glory from you. They want money from you. Trying to get some acclaim. Trying to find a place in the world. Don't believe this mess. Don't go to that church. And I'm sure some of them Maybe a lot of them, maybe all of them were tempted to doubt. Tempted to give up. But then, take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. But then Timothy came. So remember, Paul says there, we'll look at this in a few weeks, they send Timothy back just to check on, see how the church is doing. Timothy comes back and sees they're still trusting in the Lord, still going well. And then remember, Timothy left, and then he came back to Paul. And he reported that they were doing good. And then Paul wrote this letter that we're studying that was then carried to the Thessalonians. And imagine how this letter must have landed in the midst of all of those persecutions and sufferings and chastisements. Surely those, as they're reading these letters, they're sitting around in the church just like this, and they hear this letter right here. Paul's reminding them, this is how we came. This is how we came. We didn't come like this. We came like this. Surely when they heard those words, those that little new church heard these words from Paul and go, he's right. That's how he came. They probably looked around at each other, maybe with tears in their eyes and said, man, those guys were genuine. They were the real thing. Genuine people with a genuine message, with genuine results that we're experiencing, y'all. And in that moment, surely they would have been encouraged in Christ and in the gospel. And those outside voices would have been, maybe just for a few minutes, would have been silenced. Not only because of what Paul said, but surely Paul's behavior would have reminded them of their Jesus. Think about it, guys. Those four things, they came with shame and suffering with a divine authority and divine message, innocent in their fellow man as nursing mothers, like a gentle nursing money. Doesn't that describe Jesus? Doesn't that describe how he came? Jesus was described as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. John tells us in John 1.11, quote, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. William Blakey captures how Jesus came to us in shame and suffering when he wrote, quote, It was sad for Jesus to stand at the door knocking, 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 and be met with no response. They preferred Egypt, he said, to Canaan. They would linger in Sodom, though the fiery flood was ready to come down on it. 
He goes on. Jesus, he came with the balm of Gilead to a stricken world and they and they would have none of him or his balm. He came to the people that of all the tribes of the earth might have been expected to welcome him to whose fathers he had so often drawn close in the form of the angel of the Lord in their hours of darkness. And the branches of palm trees scattered along the whole line of his progress and for whose sakes that there might be no room for mistake. He, Jesus, had shadowed forth his higher blessings by healing the sick, cleansing the lepers, casting out devils, giving sight to the blind and raising the dead. And yet in the sacred capital of the country, the cry arose in response to this Jesus away with him, crucify him. And in a place of skulls and a cursed place, he was fastened to a cross and openly murdered before God and man, unquote. All of this, friends, by the very people that for more than a millennia they had been told to look for. And yet there he hung. A crown of thorns shoved upon his head. He hung naked, hanging in shame, suspended between heaven and earth. He hung his back flushed by flogging, his side bleeding, his mouth uttering, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? His enemies mocking him, quote, he can save others, but he can't save himself. Yes, Jesus came to us in shame and suffering. But he also came with a divine authority and a divine message, right? The divine authority, he was the son of God, the son of man, heaven's darling, the prince of peace, the Lord of lords. He was Emmanuel, right? God with us, bread of life, king of kings, the good shepherd of the sheep, savior of the world, the Messiah, the promised one, divine authority. Jesus said, when you see me, you see God. And he also came with a divine message. He came preaching. Mark 1.15, he preached, repent and believe the gospel, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He taught, Mark 10.45, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He taught in John 10, for this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. He taught, this is my body, broken. He taught, this is the cup of the new club, my blood poured out for you. Divine authority with a divine message. Beloved, the gospel of God about the Son of God who came to take our shame and our guilt, not his. He committed no wrong. Deceit was not found anywhere in his mouth. And yet he came to bear the punishment for the sins of all those that repent and believe and trust upon his death, burial, and resurrection for salvation. It was our sin, not his, that he hung for. It was our sin that was laid upon him at the cross. And there, for those that trust him, his righteousness, his perfect righteousness is transferred to those of us that believe. Grace. And then... Having had our justification, him propitiation, he takes the wrath of God. We are declared righteous in him. And then because the wrath is taken away and we're declared righteous, 
we then can be counted sons and daughters of God. <laughs> Genuine results. And he came, as he taught us in Matthew 11, gentle and lowly of heart. I'm sure Paul probably pulled that language from Jesus himself. Jesus came like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Why? Look at the passage. Because he so was affectionately desirous of you, Christian. That's why. Such that he was ready, Jesus was ready not only to share with you the gospel of God, but his own self. He was ready to share himself with you. He came in shame and suffering and divine authority with a divine message in a manner that was not brutal, not vicious, not demanding. But instead, he was like a gentle nursing mother telling us to repent, turn away from all of your man pleasing and idol seeking. And come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Turn from your sin. Turn to me, your Savior, as Lord and Savior, as the quencher of all of your sin. That you might know what life and love really are. Not that cheap junk that Satan, sin, and the world are trying to lure you into believing. The real thing Jesus is saying. I give you the real thing. I'll give you God. Not this junk that here today, gone tomorrow. He came, Jesus did, innocent towards his fellow man. There were no, there were no errors, no impurities of his teachings. As many might still suggest today, in his teaching, there was no attempts to deceive you, no, uh, not to please man or get glory from man. Quite the contrary. Every other religious figure that you can think of, Muhammad, right? These guys, Buddha, look at how they died and compare that to how Jesus died. Jesus uniquely came, not seeking to get glory from men. He didn't come with any words of flattery. You look in passages of Scripture where he calls us evil. No words of flattery. No, you're great just as you are. No. The whole point of him coming is because we're broke. He didn't come with words of flattery. He came with the truth. He didn't come with some sugary, fluffy message that affirms all of our base desires. He came with the truth, not flattery. Having no place to lay his head or seeking one, he did not come with any pretext for greed. He came that we might be born again. Jesus was and is the genuine Savior of the world that has brought us the genuine message of the gospel, which is light that the darkness of the world cannot overcome. And he brought genuine results and the evidence of churches that have formed in every tribe, tongue, and nation, which manifest the light and the life of the gospel. Friends, there is no one and nothing like Jesus, the Son of God, who accomplished the gospel of God in order to make sons and daughters of God that gather together in the churches of God. Nothing like it in the world. Nothing like it. And so, friends, wherever gospel-loving churches like this one form together, come together each Sunday from Istanbul, Turkey, to Tullahoma, Tennessee, from large or small, they testify, every one of them, to Christ's authority, good authority over heaven and earth. 
And for those that repent and believe and gather with God's people week after week under the gospel and the word of that gospel, they are progressively, we are progressively growing together up into him who is our head. We do that week after tireless week. Such that though our outward selves, right, may be wasting away as we gather together each Sunday, our inward selves are being renewed day by day and the light of his glory and grace. And so, yes, friends, there is a good authority in the world. And his name is Jesus. He has authority over heaven and earth. And yes, also, there are those like Paul, like Silvanus, like Timothy, that came with no pretense but were gentle. Endeavoring to form a people in the love of Christ. There are still people like that today. I know, friends, because I serve with five of them. The other elders of our church. And I'm the product of dozens of them. Godly men forming me. For no other reason because they love me and love Jesus. And I know most of your stories. The members of this church, I know most of your stories. I know that some of you have had pastors that have turned out to be jerks turned out to be greedy, turned out to be sexually immoral, turned out to be fakes in the end. I know that. I know some of you have had mentors that have not persevered in the faith. And I know some of you have even had the worst kinds of spiritual examples. But brothers and sisters, do not give up on Christ. Do not give up on his gospel. And do not give up on his church. Don't listen to the skeptics, the charlatans, the enemies of God. For every ten terrible testimonies, I could point you to a hundred faithful pastors and churches that are imperfectly seeking the face of Christ together, honestly. And those kinds of pastors and those kinds of churches will never make the headlines. One, because they're not interested in it. They're not looking to get glory from men. But two... They don't make the headlines because we forget, guys, we are in a spiritual battle. And Satan is not interested in you knowing that. Satan instead is in a much, he is interested in a much different narrative. He means to form cultural narratives that will slowly diminish your trust in spiritual authorities, which will then slowly diminish your trust in the authority of Christ. And what he will then do, his next move, is to get all of your eyes onto yourself and have enough religion in you so as to make yourself the kind of affirmation things and slowly but oh so confidently lead you away from Jesus. Now Jesus loses none to be sure, but this is his war. And if he does that, slowly diminishing your trust in spiritual authorities, slowly diminishing your trust in Christ, leading to you to be the only spiritual authority. If he does that, here's what's going to happen. You're going to hollow out. And you're going to become really cynical. I shared with some of my friends, I, made, I declared war on cynicism about five, six years ago. I'm sick of it in my own life. So easy to be cynical. So easy to tear things down. It's hard to build things up. After you get sort of turned in on yourself, not only will you be hollowed out and cynical, you'll lead to despair. So here's how we fight, guys. 
We have to daily put on the spiritual armor. Because as Paul teaches us, we do not war against flesh and blood, but against the principalities of this world in all of their gospel-hating, church-despising ways. We got to fight against that. Put on, Paul says. And the way that we do that, the way that we put that armor on is by waking up and first preaching the gospel to ourselves morning, noon, and evening. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he calls the gospel of first importance. Your job is not first importance. Your family is not first importance. This church is not first importance. Christ and his gospel are. And so we have to daily put that gospel on by preaching it to ourselves to overcome all of the naysayers and even our own doubts and fears within us. So, for instance, when we want to sleep in in the morning, we preach the gospel of redemption to ourselves. There in the bed, we say, right, I am no longer a slave to my slothfulness, right? I'm going to get out of this bed. I'm a new creation. I'm going to go get out. I'm going to pour myself some Cheerios and look to Jesus. When we get to work we, and we fail something at work, we preach the gospel of propitiation to ourselves. And we say to ourselves, when we fail, whatever punishment is coming to me as a result of my failure at my job, the greatest punishment has already been taken care of for me. I don't have to worry about whatever punishment's coming my way. That's what we have to do. Or thirdly, when a coworker chastises us, mocks us, makes fun of us, slanders us because of our allegiance to the clear teaching of the word of Christ on issues of morality, sexual immorality that are not popular today, we then preach the gospel of justification to ourselves. That while they might think I'm dirty and guilty before the Most High God, I am counted innocent. We've got to preach that to ourselves. And then we go to sleep. And we say to ourselves, I say this to my kids most every night when I pray for them when they sleep, we have to go to sleep because we're weak. God neither sleeps nor slumbers. And so therefore, Jesus, hold me fast as I go to sleep. And we sleep good when we preach the gospel to ourselves. And then, on the first day of the week, this day, the Lord's Day, Sunday, we come together. We come here in the church. The word church means to assemble, to gather. So we come here, just as those Thessalonians would have done so long ago. We come to the gathering. We come to the church. The gathering of the redeemed. We do not forsake it as some are in the habit of doing, as as, uh, Hebrews says. And we come in this gathering wherein we sing, we preach, we pray, we portray, we fellowship in the gospel every Sunday. Because it is here that we are uniquely reminded of our gospel of adoption wherein we are not only reconciled to God as Father and Christ as both brother and friend, but we are reminded at this gathering, we are reconciled not only to God as Father and Christ as Lord and brother and friend, but also we're reconciled to each other. We're reconciled to the family of God as brothers and sisters. And there the Lord sovereignly places pastors over us that are meant to care for us like gentle mothers nursing her children to life and health and peace in the gospel. And those pastors have very clear forms of character, capability, conviction, and compassions, such that if they don't meet that, if I don't meet that, you got a way to get me fired, and you should. And the same goes for the members of that church, so as to keep the gospel clear. 
and quiet the naysayers and make clear what the truth is, which is what Paul and Silvanus and Timothy were doing. So friends, there is a genuine people led by a genuine gospel of God that produces genuine results in churches that can only be explained by the Spirit of God Himself. There is this happening all over the world. Preach the gospel to yourself morning, noon, and evening. Prioritize the life of the church which rehearses the gospel together. And shut up those outside voices that are trying to lure you away to make you treat the church like Jiffy Lube, where you come and get service and then you go away. It's not the way it was intended to happen. So, beloved, I know that some of you still have doubts. I know. I also know that it's hard for some of you to trust me as a spiritual authority. I say in every membership interview that I do at the end, most everyone, I'm probably going to fail you. Just so you know. I don't want to, but I probably will. I know that some of us have doubts. I know that it's hard for some of you to trust us as elders and the leaders of this church. But whether or not you believe me is of little interest to me. What I'm most interested in you and in us is that you love Christ as Lord. That's the thing that burdens me the most. That's why, as we'll do tonight, if you want to go to another church that loves Jesus, fine. Just follow Jesus. That's what's most important. Know that his gospel is true, that Christ is Lord. His gospel is true. And unlike all of those naysayers and skeptics and deconstructionists, there are healthy churches led by healthy pastors all over the world that are forming a people in and through the gospel with genuineness. It is happening. Jesus promised it. The gates of Hades will not prevail against the advance of his church. They're everywhere. Yes, there's a bunch of bad churches and bad pastors. That much is true. Paul shows us that, doesn't he? Right? It's right here in the passage. All these people counting, pointing at people that are bad pastors and bad leaders. That's there. They recognize the presence of them. And so the reality of bad pastors leading from a purity is at least 2,000 years old, as we see in this passage. But you know what is also true? So is also, as, as it was for Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy, there's also the reality of good leaders leading from purity. Those are also true. And so wherever you're at, guys, whether you're believing, doubting, skeptical, or suspicious, God is honest. He shows you everything right here. He warns us of unhealthy leaders and unhealthy churches, but he also preserves for himself a people like the Thessalonians, like Paul, like Silvanus, like Timothy. And therefore, I invite every category of you here with us at Restoration Church. We are not bold in and of ourselves. We are bold in God. We are not seeking to deceive you. I'm not seeking to deceive you. This morning, I'm not trying to deceive you. I'm not trying to get you into my club. All right? You must know the gospel of God. Gather with the people of God to be built up in Christ who is God. But listen, that's the kind of stuff that's going to have to happen so that you can become dear to us. But you've got to know something else. In order for you to become dear to us, you also have to become dear to me. This is a two-way street. You gotta, as Paul says, you gotta preach the gospel of God and bring to us your own self as well. Right? You must first know 
that you are first dear to Christ. And then secondly, you're going to have to let us become dear to you by your sharing with us the gospel of God in your own self. Right? The, the community of the gospel is wonderful, but it isn't easy. It's far easy just to kind of treat the church like Jiffy Lube. Kind of come in and out, do your own thing. That's easy. Right? When we're going to try to do the stuff, the one and others that the God, that God calls us to, to, to shine the bright light of Christ to the community, to the world, to guard the gospel together, that's going to require both of us preaching the gospel of God to each other and sharing our own selves. Treasuring Christ together. Like the gospel itself, it's going to cost you something. Just as it cost Christ something. That's why I know sometimes you'll be, it's going to happen tonight. We're sitting in a members meeting. You're going to look down at your watch, like, or, right, 3.30, waking up from your nap, ugh, members meeting, right? But we got to do this if we're going to shine the light of Christ and guard this gospel. It's going to cost us all something. Gospel community will inconvenience us. But whatever it is, guys, the church of Jesus Christ is worth it because Christ is worth it. He staked everything on the church. Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. Paul writes to another church in Ephesus. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul is writing to a church. He's defending his ministry to encourage that church so as to encourage them Silent the skeptics so the church would be pure, undefiled in trying to labor to shine the light of Christ to the world and make clear, binding and loosing on earth as it is in heaven. And so, beloved, come one, come all to we collection of deeply flawed yet gloriously saved saints. Come as Christ has come. Come in shame, come in suffering, come with a divine authority, with a divine message that creates divine results that are innocent from the charges of sinful man. As their evidence in a manner wherein we're loving as Christ did, as Paul did, gentle and lowly of heart, like nursing mothers. And so, yes, beloved, as Paul's coming to the Thessalonians was not in vain, so will our coming together not be in vain. Insofar as we continue to share with one another, not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves. May we do that in the Lord's strength for his glory. Let's pray together.